Well, good morning. Wow, I just sense a little life here, a little vibrancy. That's great. I'm going to have a stand this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. I know we've had an open uh, altar time. I'm excited about that. I know some of you may not be comfortable. That's fine. But uh, when we contacted our altar workers, they were all really excited about praying for one another. And I'm going to talk a little bit about prayer this morning. Not That's not my theme, but it's one of my points, so it's important. Okay, let's, uh, I want to just read one verse of scripture here, found in Psalm 34. It says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. Isn't that a great text? I sought the Lord, and he answered me. God is a God who hears our cry. He's not deaf, you know, and he's concerned about us. And then it goes on to say, he delivered me from all my fears. You know, fear is a terrible motivator, and it leads people into bondage, and it leads people into confusion. And I wanna pray today that God will open up our hearts and set us free from fear, that we can walk in freedom. Anybody up for that? Anybody like that idea? That we can walk in freedom, and in joy, and in hope, and in confidence, because our God is a good God, and he's for us. The Bible says if God be for you, who can be against us? I love that. God is for us. So Lord, we thank you that your word reveals your heart and mind to us. And I thank you that when we call out to you, we're not wasting time. That when we call out to you, you hear our cry and you're a God who answers our prayer. And Lord, I just pray today that you would deliver us even from that wellspring of fear, that the only fear that we would have would be a healthy fear of you, that would be a reverence and awe, that we would recognize that you are in control of the, the, the affairs of human beings. You're overshadowing and overseeing human history, Lord, as it's playing out to the very end, Lord, and we have a confidence that you are in control of our lives. Your word declares that you will even recognize even when a hair falls from our head. You are so into the minutia of our lives because you deeply care for each one of us. I pray today that you'd open our hearts. I pray today, Father, that you would apprehend us and help us to hear your voice speaking into those places in our lives that you want to comfort, encourage, strengthen, challenge, and convict. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles. We're going to continue our series of messages from the book of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Last week I said I wanted to preach a sermon from verses 1 through 11. I decided that's too long, cut it in half. And now we're going to go from verses 7 to 11. So when I ask the question, my, my, my message is entitled Preparing for a Cosmic Invasion. Everybody's going, okay, this sounds interesting, but, but it's going to happen. You're going to hear that. How many believe that we're living in the end times? How many believe that? Every hand should go up. You go, why's that? Well, you're going to see in a minute. Uh, but when I ask that question, you know, most Christians state unequivocally, yes, absolutely. This is it. We're in the end times. And, uh, but I, I think we have to say that because biblically, we've been in the end times since the ascension of Jesus. 2,000 years we've been in the end times. That's a startling statement. I mean, the early church had a sense that it was gonna happen at any moment. 
They lived with that sense of urgency. They had a mission that they needed to accomplish, and they were living with that powerful sense of that. And then, of course, Second Peter comes along, and he's writing because there's critics. Well, you know, Jesus said he was going to come back, you know, soon, and so how come he's not here yet? And Peter answers, well, you know, with God, a thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. How many know God has a different feeling for time than you and me? I mean, when you're an eternal being, what's a thousand years? I mean, it's nothing, right? But why has he delayed for so long? Because the Bible says God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God has a reason. But we still should live with that sense that, as, as we're going to see, it could happen at any moment. You know, a new world order is about to burst on the scene. I know a lot of people focus on, you know, Book of Revelation, the Antichrist, and those kinds of things. But I want to declare to you, Jesus is coming back to rule the planet. That's an exciting thought for me. That, that means that there's going to be a whole new transformation. You talk about the ultimate remodeling job. You know, think about it. He says he's going to give you and I brand new bodies. Now, I know some of you are waiting for body parts. You know, he's like, you know, I need a knee replacement. I need a hip replacement. Can I just tell you when Jesus comes along, it's going to be a great, you're going to, you're, you're going to have the perfect body. Some of you go, I don't really like this body. It's not functioning the way I want it to. Good news. You're going to have one that you like, and it's going to function really good. It's going to be able to go for all of eternity. That's called a resurrected body. Read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then he decides, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna remodel the planet. You know, like some of us take on a remodeling job. How hard is that? But he's gonna take on the whole entire cosmos. He's taken on the universe. He's taken on planet Earth. And things like earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes, they're all gonna disappear. You say, well, where are you coming up with this stuff, Pastor? Well, in the book of Romans, it says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, in other words, God's made a down payment. He's showing us this is reality, the Spirit living in us. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Wow. So the redemption that Jesus began 2,000 years ago, he's still completing. And it's not totally completed until you get a new body. Anybody up for that? You're not totally redeemed yet. You still don't have your new resurrection body, but that's coming. It's, you know, it's on order. You know, it's, it's going to happen. Thomas Schreiner points out regarding the sense of engagement we should have in light of the expectation of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the challenges in waiting 2,000 years is that people get a little bit weary and they get a little indifferent and apathetic and pretty soon we get caught up with this life. How many say that's true? And we end up getting swallowed up with the value system of our society and pretty soon we lose that sense of urgency because you can imagine the New Testament Christians, they thought he could come at any moment and Jesus gave them this amazing commission and they were out trying to fulfill the commission. They weren't worried about other things, they were worried about that. Now, Thomas Schreiner says this, eschatology, that's a fancy word. It's the word about the last things. Is inevitably used to encourage believers to live in a godly way. In other words, when we look at what's about to come, this should motivate us to live a certain way. That's what he's telling us here. 
He says, nor does the New Testament ever invite believers to withdraw from the world. You know, a lot of people, when they think about Jesus coming back and all the bad stuff, they end up moving to northern Canada or in some place of isolation or they go off grid. Come on, let's be honest. People do that stuff, right? They're freaked right out. That's not what the Bible's teaching, folks. Because the end is near, or to gaze at the skies. You know, sometimes people have made predictions and then everybody sold everything and they went on top of a hillside and looked up. That's literally happened in history. That's not what we're supposed to do either. You know, that's usually a bad sign. Somebody tells you that, go, no, we don't know the day or the hour. Because they're now hoping for Christ's return. He says, rather the eminence of the end should function as a stimulus to action in this world. The knowledge that believers are sojourners and exiles. In other words, we're just passing through. Do you know this is not our final destination? We're on a journey. We're on a trip. You know, how many know that when you're on a trip, I don't know, when you go for a long distance on an airplane for many, many hours, you know, you're all saying, your body's saying, are we there yet? You know, that's how you feel. And, you know, every once in a while as a Christian, you go, are we there yet? You know, like, are we going to get done this journey? Because a lot of times there's crazy things happening in this life. But he says, whose time is short, we recognize our time is short. You know, when you're young, you think you had a long time to live. But I notice one thing, as you move along in age, it seems like it goes faster and faster and faster. And pretty soon you're saying to yourself, wow, is life ever short? As a matter of fact, you start agreeing with the psalmist and you're saying life is a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. But this should actually galvanize them to make their lives count now. In other words, if we're only here for a short time, let's make sure we do it right. You know, let's not live with a bunch of regrets. Let's not make bad decisions. Let's embrace what the scriptures are teaching about the kind of life we should live as believers. So the first part of 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 6, Peter's been talking about the judgment. Remember, He's talking about how to handle it when people who are non-believers begin to revile you, persecute you, abuse you, say all manner of evil against you. And I'm just reminding us, what are we supposed to do? Punch out their lights, get even, get frustrated, get angry, be full of anger and bitterness and hatred? No, it says, no, be like Jesus. They're crucifying him and he's forgiving them. He's blessing rather than cursing. He's not reviling, he's not retaliating, he's doing good to them. How many go, that's not normal, pastor? I'm going, no, that's supernatural. That means the life of Christ is living and ruling and reigning through your life. So that's the first six verses. Now Peter shifts. But what do we, how should we treat each other in light of the coming of Christ? How should we treat fellow believers? The, shift, the focus has shifted away from that. Uh, how do we prepare for this cosmic invasion, the second coming of Jesus? Well, I want to just quote again Thomas Schreiner, and he says this. He says, we might expect a call for extraordinary behavior or thinking something unusual would be demanded in light of the arrival of the end. In other words, would we kind of make so, super hucular, uh, huc, how do you say that? Herculean effort. You know, we're like Hercules. We're, we're going to give it everything we got, Right. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. Rather, Peter exhorts his readers to pursue virtues that are a normal part of New Testament paranesis. Now, that's a fancy word for practice. Whatever God's telling, you know, it's not, why do these guys do that, you know? I'm interpreting him for you, okay. But I like this part. He says, we are reminded of what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said when asked what he would do if the end were to come today. He said, well, I just plant a tree and pay my taxes. Now, how many go, huh? That doesn't seem like the right response, but actually it is. 
Because what he's really saying is that we're to live every day in the light of the end, and hence we would do the appointed tasks of that day. In other words, whatever you're to do, you do. And you're living with the right value system, and you have a right understanding, we should be actually living every day as if this could be my last day. And if we live like that, how many think we're probably gonna live a little better lives? You know, because if in the back of your mind you go, well, you know, Jesus could show up tonight, you know, I dug out my house in order. We should always get our, our house should always be in order. That's what he's telling us. And we should be doing what we're commissioned to do in life. Now, I think there's a number of things that we need to consider. And Peter's now gonna outline some of the things that we need to consider as we are preparing for Jesus coming. And he says it very clearly in these five verses. He starts up by, I'm gonna just give them to you, three things that will prepare you and me for Christ's coming. And the first one is living a life of prayer. Beautiful. You know, if prayer is a fundamental aspect of the Christian life, I would say it's the introduction to the Christian life. You have to pray to get saved. They that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, so you, you have to talk to God. Prayer is just talking to God. That's the beginning of it. And then he, uh, and I think prayer is also an expression of genuine faith and it expresses our humble dependency on God. So if we're not praying, what we're basically saying is, God, I can handle this on my own. I don't know about you, but life is pretty complex. And you and I are probably not smart enough to go against all the forces of darkness that are coming against our soul and against our society. I think I need a little help. Actually, I would say more than a little. I'd say I need a lot of help. And so prayer means I'm engaging with God and I'm in his presence and I'm able to communicate with him. I share the burdens of my heart. You know, a lot of times we carry a lot of stuff in our lives we can let go of. You know, it, it, you know, if we could just have a visual picture of how much baggage we're carrying, you know, all of the burdens and the anxieties in our soul, you're probably packing around 60, 70 extra pounds of weight, maybe 80. Some of you are packing 150, you're just barely making it. You know what I'm saying? Wouldn't it be great to just take that bunch of baggage and go, God, here's the baggage. I'm just going to walk out and tr just trust you. That would be amazing. And I think that's the way he wants us to live. So Peter goes on to say this, the end of all things is near, therefore, this is how you should live, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So now he's giving us conditions to actual prayer. He said there's two things you need to consider. You need to be alert. Jesus said watch and pray. And then he said to be sober mind, sober minded. What's the opposite of being sober? Drunk or intoxicated. You know, I'm going to say something. There's a lot of intoxicated Christians. I'm not talking about chemicals. I'm just talking about we're intoxicated with the things of this life. You know, we're totally caught up with the wrong stuff. And so he says, when you're like that, you don't pray correctly. You're, creating, you're praying with all this anxiety and stuff like that. You're having a hard time praying. You're having a hard time really getting into it. As a matter of fact, I notice there's two things about prayer that I think are important. And sometimes people get this confused. The first one is that we need to pray privately. We need to have personal prayer. That's another way of saying it. We pray in secret. You know, Jesus in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking about some people try to appear to be spiritual, and so they were praying publicly. It was a bunch of hypocrisy. And Jesus said it this way. He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I'll tell you, they'll have received their reward in full. So there are people that want to make a show that they're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a person that's real spiritual. I'm praying, you're, you're all seeing me pray. 
He goes, no, no, no. When you pray, go to your room. Close the door. Pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you openly. That's a beautiful thing. So what is he teaching us here? We need to have individual, personal prayer where we close a door. You know, some translations say the closet. This is a room. You know what he's saying? You want a place where you're uninterrupted where you can just, you and God can have a conversation without people crashing into your space. Then you can talk and you can say things that are on your heart and you can open up your soul. You know, I tell God everything. You know why I do that? He knows everything. You get, well, you know, sometimes you say some stuff about yourself, you go, it's not that pretty. God goes, I already know it's there. We're just having a conversation about it. I don't want it to be here, God. Well, let's deal with it. You know, it's that kind of a conversation. Transparent, open. You know, I can tell God everything and anything, and I can talk about anybody and, and uh, share my concerns about people. And God says, yeah, I'm concerned about them too. We can have that kind of a conversation. It's great. But not only do we... Uh, I think proper praying is really about motivation. I think this is what he's talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount, that we have the right motivation. It's not so much I'm praying to have everybody think I'm a good guy. I'm praying because I'm needy, I'm dependent, faith draws me to it, and I see results as a result of it. And you know what I notice? A lot of us, we're busy confronting one another sometimes and we're getting very little results. And I find that talking to the Father in heaven is far more powerful than nagging people. Okay? So if, you, if there's things that you're concerned about, bring it to the Lord in prayer. Number second idea here that I think is important, we pray together in community. You know, a lot of people don't understand something. Usually when I'm praying privately, my prayers are more focused around my personal concerns, okay? But when I'm praying corporately, I can't do that anymore. I'm in a wider context. I'm praying with other Christians, and the, and the prayers change and move past me, so now we're praying for things that affect more people and beyond me. And I find I'm praying for people I don't even know at times. You know, when you bring in your prayer requests, and I'm, we're praying as a staff, and we're praying collectively, you know, I'm praying for people I've never met. You know, as a matter of fact, the list is usually people I've never even met before, and yet I'm now praying for others. And how many know that's moving you past yourself? So I think there's something profound about praying collectively. As a matter of fact, if you have an overview of the prayer life of the early church, you're going to see that they did pray together. So it wasn't that Jesus was against praying together. He was against the wrong motivation for praying, you know. But he does call us to pray corporately. We actually have a corporate prayer meeting in our church on Tuesday nights. And you know, God's doing things. And I think it's powerful. And I think our church needs to learn how to pray more. We need to develop a more corporate mindset. That's the weakness in North America. You know, we're very individualistic. And that's a problem. That's a, actually, I put that down as one of our weaknesses in this culture. We're just too individualistic. We need to learn to bear one another's burdens. You're going to hear that today. Look what it says in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And they all join together constantly in prayer. Isn't that powerful? They all join together constantly in prayer. And then it went on to talk about who was there. But something happened on that day. You know, the Spirit of God was released on that day as they were in a joint prayer meeting. God's Spirit was poured out on them. They all... We're empowered by the Spirit of God. Do you know part of our empowerment comes as we're praying together? And I want to challenge you with that. You're saying, well, yeah, I'm struggling in my Christian life. Well, 
Come and pray. You say, well, I don't know how to pray, Pastor. How do you learn how to pray? By doing it. Come and pray. That's how you'll learn. You'll get around people. Listen, I used to go to a lot of prayer meetings, and I was around a lot of older saints, and I heard a lot of praying in my life. And you learn how to pray when you're around people who pray. That's how you'll learn. Be around people. Then I noticed when they were under persecution, I just put that down, they were facing challenges. What did they do? They got together and prayed. Look at chapter two, four. On their release from the Sanhedrin, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They told them, don't teach or preach in the name of Jesus. They said, hey, we keep, sorry guys, uh, we have a higher calling than you. Even though you're our authority, you're telling us to do something that God's commanded. You're forbidding us to do something God's commanded, which is preach the gospel. And it says, and when they heard this, who did they go to? Their company. What did the, what did the people do? They raised their voices together in prayer to God. You know, I don't, I, we've done that a few times in our corporate prayer meeting now. I said, we're going to all pray right now together. You know, I've been to other cultures, and they know how to do this, folks. Technically, we should all be able to pray together. How many know when you're in a room of about 200 people and everybody's lifting their voices to God in prayer, all of a sudden you're going to sense something? You're going to feel like you're like a rocket ship coming off the launch pad. That's what you're going to feel like. You know, that's powerful. How many say, well, I don't even know if I could pray like that? Yeah, you'll catch on. That's how you'll learn. I'm trying to encourage you, I'm trying to explain something to you. You go, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm nervous. I don't know how to pray. How are you going to learn? You've you got to get involved where people are praying. Notice what happens when they started praying. And it says afterwards, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They had a little rumble. You know, I remember a number of years ago, we were praying in Seattle. Seattle has, you know, it's on the fault line there. And we were at the prayer meeting and we were praying. All of a sudden I noticed, you know, the room is moving because, you know, we're having a little bit of a, a tremor. And I'm noticing the... Uh, the, the coat hangers that were, you know, you had a whole rack of coat hangers. They're all swaying, you know. I'm, and I, so I said to the people in the prayer meeting, I said, man, this is a great prayer meeting. I said, the place where we were meeting was shaking, you know. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a great statement? They were all filled with the Spirit. There was something that happens when we're praying together. The Spirit of God comes in a more powerful manifestation. And it says, they began to spoke the word of God boldly. What happened? They were praying that God would help them. They were praying that God would use them. They were praying that God would continue to do miracles through them so that they could have a greater impact on their community. So they weren't praying just for their personal needs. They were praying for their community. And boy, I tell you, God really showed up in a powerful way. In the, and what a dynamic prayer meeting. How many say, I'd like to be in a prayer meeting like that when the room is shaken? Well, I've been in one of those prayer meetings, and I've been in some very powerful prayer meetings here in the church over the years. Amen. Here in 1 Peter 4, 7, he describes the conditions for effective prayer, alert and sober-minded. Uh, Paul Ackermeyer says, points to, be the, uh, points to the need for a disciplined life. Do you know that you, you know, people who are not disciplined don't pray very much? They seem to be all over the map. You know, I, I think sometimes we're like those little, what do you call those little, uh, in their little cages and they're running, what's that? Hamsters. I think there's a whole bunch of hamster Christians. You know, they're stuck on this little wheel and they're running for all they're worth and they're going in circles and circles and circles and, you know, why don't we just get off the hamster wheel for a minute and spend time with God in prayer? And I'll tell you, you'll say, well, yeah, but pastor, I'm so busy. And I'm going, that's the problem. You're too busy. And usually we're not accomplishing that much. And if we'd slow down and spend time with God, you'd accomplish even more with less uh, hamster activity. You know? 
We need to pray. Then he says, it's not only necessary for prayer, but also for the kind of life with fellow Christians described in the following verses, which we're going to look at. Uh, Often during times of crisis, people lose their heads. How many know that's true? People do not, are not cool-headed. You stick a crisis there, and people start going in every which direction. I mean, take, for example, COVID. You know, I think COVID was a huge test, and it brought out what was inside of us. And some people panicked. Even Christians, I noticed panic. Some people got all upset and they're afraid. Some people got angry, you know. By the way, the angry people and the fearful people, it's all the same motivation. It's all based out of fear. I don't know if you know that. Fear is a huge problem. Thomas Schreiner says, the nearness of the end has led some believers to lose their heads and to act irrationally. He goes on to say, on the contrary, believers should think sensibly as they contemplate the brevity of life in this world, and those who know the contours of history are able to assess the significance of the presence, present time. Do you know what's the beauty about the Bible? It's very historical. Lots of historical narrative. You get a picture of history over a long period of time, and how many know there's been a lot of crisis over human history? And, you know, I'm I'm a student of history. And one thing I've kind of noticed is, eventually things come back to a state of somewhat normal. You know, you go through crisis, you come back to normal. You go through crisis. After a while, you stop panicking because you recognize something. There's a God in heaven who's in control of everything. And when you have real faith in God, you don't lose your cool and you don't lose it. You start learning how to say, okay, God, where are we at in the story? And isn't it interesting that Daniel, who was a man of prayer and a man of the scriptures, he realized where they were at and he began to pray. And he said, you know, the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied about in captivity are now about to come to an end. Instead of sitting on his duff doing nothing, he began to intercede in prayer. And God gave him amazing visions that explained a lot of things to Daniel. I think that's powerful. You and I need to know and learn how to pray. As a matter of fact, the, you know, the opposite, as I've already said, to be sober-minded is to be intoxicated, allowing the culture to affect and shape our world. Peter David says this will lead to prayers not based on daydreams and unreality, nor the prayer based on surprise, desperation, but the prayer that calls upon and submits to God in light of reality seen from God's perspective and thus obtains power and guidance in the situation, however evil the time may be. For our proper... Uh, prayer is not an opiate, which means praying is not an escape, guys. It's not a drug. It's not to nullify our panic. No, it's a function of a clear vision and a seeking of even clearer vision from God. In other words, I'm praying not because I'm in a panic mode. I'm praying because I, I see that God has a purpose in this thing, and I want to be able to function properly in a crisis. I want to do what God's calling me to do in this difficult moment. But let me move on to the second thing that prepares us for Jesus' coming. The first is a life of prayer. The second is how we treat each other. And this is powerful. While earlier in the letter, we've already seen Peter's talking about how we should relate to non-believers. Now he focuses in on how we should care for one another. First, verse 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, two powerful verses. And I think the hospitality thing is really an expression of the first thing, which is learning how to love one another, how to care for each other. So how do you break the hate cycle? It's a great question. You know, we see 
uh, as R.C. Sproul points out, Christian love is not just about an individual's love for God or for Christ. He who loves God cannot love God and hate his brother. You, you read, he says that, but you read that in 1 John. I would say it this way. The way you treat people is a measure of your love for God. If you treat people with love, it's reflecting that you truly love God. But if you treat people less than that, you know, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you treat your neighbor, how you treat your, your, uh, the person that annoys you, you know, how you treat these people is really a reflection of how you really are loving God. That's the test. Okay, so if you want to know how much you love God, evaluate how you're relating to other people. And that's telling you the degree and the, and, the, and the kind of the condition of your love towards God. We manifest our love for God by a fervent love for each other. There's a big difference between tolerance and zealous love. How many know that's true? There's, you know, you're saying, oh, I'm just putting up with this person. Well, I don't know how deep that love is. As a matter of fact, he says, love each other deeply. Hmm. Howard Marshall explains that word deep love. He says, it has to be deep love, because the, but the English word does not adequately convey what that really means. He says, it means at full stretch, literally, at full stretch. Why at full stretch? Because this love will be stretched to the limits by the demands put upon it. Many people are prepared to care for others. They're a lot less ready to have affection for them and to demonstrate it. It requires love at full stretch to do this. Now, how many know that it's, it's going to take everything you've got to love people? Because sometimes people are going to annoy you. They're going to irritate you. They're going to hurt you. Now, you've got to love these people deeply. Well, how do you do that when somebody hurts me? We've got to forgive them. Wow. See, this is real practical stuff. How many go, wow, Peter, you're, you're saying this is how I should be living to prepare for Jesus? He goes, absolutely, prayer, love one another. What is, you know, Peter's actually quoting Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Now, Peter David says in the Old Testament means that love will pass over wrongs done to a person rather than to continue a dispute. What was he saying? How many know when you're in a conflict, rather than retaliate in like fashion, you actually ch break the chain by doing something nice. You know, soft answer turns away anger. You know, forgiveness is a very powerful thing. You know, see, love covers over things. Love actually allows relationships to continue on. In other words, we need to learn to overlook offenses and not be so sensitive. How many of you know that's true? This is a very easily offended culture. Everybody's upset about something. How many go, that's true, Pastor? We're all walking around wounded. Can I just tell you, that's because we're all porcupines. You know, you've heard the story. It was really cold outside, and there were two porcupines. Now, they, they were either going to freeze or get together, and every time they got together, they hurt each other. <laughs> you know, that's the culture we're living in today. we got to learn to become more gracious and a little more thick-skinned and a little less easily offended. This ability to not take everything personally, I think, is important to maintain relationships. Otherwise, you can't do it. Uh, <clears throat> Obviously, I'm not talking about abuse here. I have to always 
come back and say, you know, this is not letting somebody abuse you emotionally, mentally, and all the rest of it. But I, but I am saying, stop being so sensitive. It's not about you. And we're going to hear that in a minute. I'm, I'm getting there. You'll see what I'm, where I'm going. Uh, N.J.D. White in his Greek New Testament a commentary explains, a person who's under the godly control, uh, control of godly love acts when a private personal injury has been done to him. Uh, as though nothing has occurred. In this way, by simply ignoring the unkind act or the insulting word, nothing will just, uh, I, I oh, okay, that got skipped. He brings the evil thing to an end. It dies and leaves no seed. This consideration gives dignity and worth inestimable to feeble efforts of the most insignificance of us to make love the controlling principle in our daily lives. I, what he's basically saying is, when we make love the condition on which we're going to relate to people, we're not going to take things and make big things out of them because love covers a multitude of sins. This is not that you and I can forgive people. I mean, take away their sin. We can forgive people. We can't remove their sin. That we can't do. The only person that can remove sin is God. You see, love covers a multitude of sin. I think this is a play on the Old Testament. Remember the mercy seat? You know what the mercy seat was? Remember those two angels looking down on the mercy seat? It was in the most holy place. And underneath was the Ark of the Covenant. Inside was the, the law of God. And what happens is you and I keep breaking the law of God. So the high priest went in once a year. What did he do? He had a sacrificial animal killed and he took the blood and he put it where? On the mercy seat. What was, what was he doing? He was making a covering for the broken law. You see, to be at one with God means you're making a covering. You're, you're covering over. And what, what brings about that sacrifice is love. Somebody has to suffer in order to make that atonement. And that's the point. When you and I are forgiving people, we're in a sense suffering to do that. We're covering this over by doing that. R.C. Sproul says, uh, nothing uh, will destroy a church faster than pettiness. People picking at each other over trivial things. I'm uh, moving along here. Okay, that's the right one. In the New Testament, we're told that when Christians commit gross and heinous sins, they must be disciplined as part of the spiritual nurture of the church. However, our Lord was very careful to specify the sins that require discipline, understanding that no one in the church of Christ is finished with sanctification. We all bring baggage into the Christian life. We are each at a different point in our progress. So what is he trying to say? He's saying, yeah, there are some things we have to discipline in people. And you say, well, which ones are those, Pastor? They're the ones that are destroying other people's lives. Those we got to address. But how many know in this room, whether you like to believe it or not, every one of us has sin issues and baggage in our life. And fortunately, the blood of Jesus is covering us over and over and over again. And, you know, we probably have idiosyncrasies and things in this room that other people find annoying. It's true. So if, you know, how, how do you develop relationships? You have to overlook some things. And that's what Peter's talking about here. Love covers over a multitude of sins. You gotta, you gotta just say, you know what, I choose to love this person in spite of this behavior or this annoying habit or whatever it is or, you know, I wish they would listen to me instead of always talking or they're always trying to solve the problem for me. Why don't they just listen? That's what I'd like them to do, but they don't do that. 
And no matter how many times I tell them, they still don't do it, you know? And then we get frustrated with that person. But that's, that's, their, that's a fault in their life. But here, let me say this. They've got 15 redeeming qualities, but what, would, what do we tend to do? Well, we focus on the problem. How many here say, yeah, I have a hard time. I tend to focus on problems rather than the redeeming qualities. And I think we need to learn how to look at people and say, here's what's amazing about this person. And if you would start to do that when you come to people and say, I want to make a list of all the amazing things about this person, I think that'll help you to overlook some of the negative things in their lives. Because if they got 15 good things and two annoying things, why are you keep focusing on the two annoying things? Well, yeah, well, it's annoying me. Well, then you got to die to yourself. Don't be so easily offended. Then you move on here. There's this caring assimilation of hospitality. Now, we know in the early church, they didn't have hotels and all the rest of it, so people stayed in people's homes. Now, how many know people take advantage of people when you're in your home? Especially if they stay too long, or, you know, they, they, they do things that you ask them not to do. People can get annoyed by that. And so he's saying, no, I want you to show hospitality. But let me move it and contemporize it a little bit so that it has application for us. Because most people, you know, it's not a big issue. We all have homes. And it's nice when we open our home once in a while and invite people in. I think that's really important. But can I just explain to you what I think hospitality is really all about? Open our hearts. We need to learn how to open our hearts to other people. And a lot of us, it's, you know, we just say, you know, I'm not going to do that because every time I open my heart, I get hurt. Anybody here been hurt when you open your heart to a person? Yeah, be prepared. I would argue that the moment you open your heart, you're going to get hurt. You see, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. You see, part of loving is opening your heart. It's a risk you're taking. I'm saying the reward is greater than the risk. I would even argue that if we're living in community as a church family, just think of the people who come to faith in Christ. Now they've lost all of their friends, and especially in some of these cultures where family is everything, the moment they become a Christian in some of these cultures, they are written off by their family. Can you imagine if the church doesn't bring them in and treat them like family? They're hooped. And so in North America here, we just kind of do our own thing and go our own way. We, we think church is coming and listening to a sermon and going home. No, it's not. This is the beginning point. This is an avenue. What we need to be doing is saying, if I'm going to grow as a Christian, I need to open my life and my heart to other people in, that are different than me. And listen to me. When you practice hospitality, opening your life to other people, the book of Hebrews says sometimes people have entertained angels unaware. You go, well, that would be fine. I would be happy if I opened my heart and home and all of a sudden an angel showed up. We'd all thought, oh, that's great. I love that idea. Can I tell you something? When you don't open your heart to other people, there are people God wants to bring into your life that would enrich you in ways you wouldn't believe, but you're not open to it because you're closed. And so we need to open our souls to other people. God wants to bring people into our lives that may help us in ways we had never thought of. But let me move on to the third thing. Not just, how do I prepare for Jesus coming? My prayer life. How I treat other people. But what about the faithful use of the gifts God has given to me? You know, it's interesting here. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as, a faithful, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Now, what's he talking about here? Real simple. Every one of us here, you know, if you're a Christian, you've received God's grace. How many go that? I know that. How many know that? Just raise your hand. You know that you've received God's grace. 
It's a gift from God, right? Now, listen to me carefully. Everything that you are as a person is a gift. God's given you special gifts. Did you know that? Every human being has gifts that God's put in their lives. It's come from God. It's called charisma. We talk about people who have charisma. That means gift. It's from the Greek word. It means gift. All that you are came from God. All that you are. Listen to me now. It's so important to hear this. So everything that you have has been given to you by God. Where you grew up, the family that you got, the experiences that God allowed you to have, the positive ones. I'm not going to talk about the negative ones for a minute. The positive ones help develop you. And I would even argue sometimes the negative ones actually maybe have strengthened you and given you deeper levels of empathy and compassion for other people. I see everything God's using for good. That's how my mind works. It all works for good eventually. You know, God can even take the worst case scenarios and transform them and redeem them. And eventually we become a better person. We become more compassionate, more empathetic, more understanding, more sympathetic, all those good things. God's using all of that. My question is, what are you doing with it? You see, a lot of times, and I'm, I'm your friend here, I'm going to help you out because one day we're all going to stand before God. How many say that's true? We're all going to stand before God. And as a Christian, we say, well, I'm not going to be judged for my sins. Jesus died for them. I say, yeah, that's true. But listen to me now. We're all going to be judged on whether we lived our lives with real value and we did good or we, we, we lived, a, 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 you know, we did either good or bad. The word bad there in Romans 10, 5 is actually, I mean, 510 is actually without value. So is your life bringing value or no value? That's what God's going to assess. And I'm going to argue from this parable, which is, uh, yeah, he says spiritual gifts are not fundamentally a privilege, they're a responsibility. But listen, Jesus tells the parable of the talents. The talents are not our abilities. Talents are a measure, a currency, a measure of currency. So the NIV translate bag of gold. You've heard the story. The master gives five, five bags of gold to one man, two bags of gold, one bag of gold. Five bag of gold guy goes out. What does he do? He duplicates it, comes back to the master at the end. He gives him 10 bags of gold. Okay, interesting. Master says, well done. Now what? Good and faithful servant. I, you could say steward, manager. Person with two bags of gold produces two more bags. He gets the same thing. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now the one guy with the one bag, what's he do? He goes and buries it in the backyard. You know, doesn't do anything with it. But once he comes up to be reviewed, he goes and digs the bag back up. He goes, here it is. Here's your bag. This is the response from the master. Take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. Well, everybody's going, what? That's not the expectation they had. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now, what's going on here? Here's my take on this parable. Real simple. If you're truly a believer, you can't help yourself. You're going to be used of God. You're going to use what God's put into your life, and you're going to start multiplying and doing things, and you're going to live for him. Because faith without works is what? It's dead. It's just an empty, hollow, mental ascent. And that's what's happening in this story. And look what he says. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That person doesn't know what's going down. What's my point? My point is real simple. Uh, I'll, I'll say it to you this way. 
In our prayer time this morning, I said to the guys, if, if I could take a little wand, I know this is fictitious and fantasy, and I'm not advocating magic. Don't come and condemn me. But if I could walk along here with my little wand and walk up to you and go, bump, 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 bump. You know what I'd be saying behind that? I'd be going, uh, I was going to say it. You're not your own. 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 Why am I doing that? Because I think too many people think, this is my life. I'll do what I want. I'll make my choices. I go, no, you're not your own. You were created for God. You were created by God. Everything that you have is from God, and you were created for God's pleasure. We're not here for our pleasure. We're here for his pleasure. But when I do what God wants me to do, I get the most pleasure. That's an irony of life. Isn't that amazing? So a lot of people are walking around going, it's so boring, I'm so unhappy, blah, 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 blah. I'm going, if you're doing what God wants you to do, you'll be a lot happier. And so you need to start, start thinking like, this isn't about me, it's about God. What does he want me to do? I want to do his will. Powerful things begin to happen. And here we see that the gifts are now divided into two categories. Because some people say, well, I don't even know what my gift is. Well, I'll help you real quick. Notice what it says here in verse 11. He says, um, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. So if you're speaking, you should be communicating God's word. You know, I'll be honest. Who cares what I think? But you really care what God thinks. Amen. And you want to hear what God has to say. That's what I'm concerned about too. So all of us that are speaking, people aren't looking how bright you are. Who cares what our opinions are? I'm, I'm really concerned what God's opinion is. So we should be speaking God's wisdom to each other and to our broken world. Now it says, if you serve, do so with the strength God provides. So God's not asking you to do more than you're able. Don't feel guilty. Some people say, I'm not doing enough, Pastor. Just do the best you can. It's real simple. If you're doing the best, relax. That's all God expects. How many think it would be wrong of me to expect something from somebody that they're incapable of doing? You go, well, that's unreasonable. Well, do you think God's unreasonable? I don't. If you're giving God your best, he goes, great. But if you're sitting back going, I'm doing my thing, it's about me rather than God, you're going to get into a little bit of trouble. That's why I'm telling you this stuff today. So you'll be able to be prepared when Jesus shows back and you're standing before God's judgment seat. Now, the motivation for praying, loving, and serving is what? To glorify God. Look what it says. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. How many already see it's not even about us? So we got to get that out of our heads. It's not about you and me. It's about him and his glory. Actually, that word glory, it's a very fascinating word in the Hebrew language. It literally means heavy. God is heavy. God has weight and substance to him. As a matter of fact, I was reading R.C. Sproul, and he said, the universe and everything in it could exist without us. That's a word for some of us in the room here. You didn't get that. Let me say it again. The universe and everything in it could exist without me and could exist without you. How I many of you that's probably true? It is true. Let's be realistic. We're not necessary to the existence of all things. The fact is, as not necessary creatures, we have a contingent, derived, and dependent existence. Only God is self-existent and a necessary being. We all come from him 
We were created by him and we were created for him. All that we do ought to be done with the idea that our praying, our loving, and our serving are for him. Beautiful. That's why I'm alive. I'm living for him. That's why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm living for him. If you're wondering why you're on the planet, you were here for him. You say, why am I here? To bring pleasure to God. Isn't that great? You know, my grandchildren bring pleasure to me. People bring, bring pleasure to me. God says, my created world brings pleasure to me. Isn't that a nice thought? Hey, God, you bring pleasure to God. We could also irritate him, I suppose, and we're doing our own thing. Yeah. But let me close here. You know, I asked Andrea today because I couldn't remember which grandchild did this. But one of them did it, and she said it's probably Ezra. I do believe that. He's quite focused. So one day he's chatting with me, and I wasn't paying close enough attention. That does happen. I can stray, to be honest. And he grabbed my little face like this, and he moved it right to him. It was eyeball to eyeball. And at that moment, he had my full attention. You know what I mean? Do you know what our prayer was this morning in our prayer, me- our, our prayer time? I said, this is what I'm going to pray for, that God the Holy Spirit is going to grab your little face and wheel you right around, look you eyeball to eyeball, and have his full, you have you now, he now has your full attention and he's going to ask you, are you ready for me? Because I'm coming. Are you ready for me? Are you praying the way you ought to? Are you loving and opening your heart to people in spite of the challenges that that brings? Stretched out, loving deeply? And are you serving and not neglecting to do what God has put into your life. You know, I was thinking about it. It's pretty hard to do these three things from home. It's pretty hard to do these things when we're not in relationship with one another. How many say, can you see it? How many say, how do I see that now? Yeah, we're in community. So we're gonna stand this morning as we close the service in prayer. I'm hoping he got your full attention. I'm hoping you started realizing, you know what, it's not about me. It's about him. And I gotta, I gotta live for him. And I'm, I'll make this guarantee, if you live completely for him, you are gonna be the happiest camper on the planet. If you live completely for him, even the crisis that come in your life and the crisis coming around us, you're gonna be clear-headed. You're not gonna lose your cool. You're not gonna fall apart because you know your Father in Heaven's got that under control. Amen. And you're going to be praying and saying, okay, God, what do we need to be doing now? What do I need to understand now? How do I need to behave and act in this situation? Because I feel like a lot of people are bouncing all over the place. But I'm saying, hey, an invasion is coming. Are we ready? I'm going, yeah, this is what Peter says. Live this kind of life. And you'll be fine. You won't have to worry about it. A war can come, a famine can come, BC can burn down, all the ashes fall on Alberta. Whatever's happening, right? You'll be fine. You will be fine because you are trusting your Father in heaven. So with every head bowed right now, 
How many just sense in your spirit that God the Holy Spirit just grabbed your little face right now and pulled your eyeballs to eyeball with him this morning and said, I want you to know you belong to me. It's not about you, it's about me. And I want you to live this way. I don't want you to live in fear. I don't want you to live in anxiety. I don't want you to fret. I don't want you to be intoxicated by the values of this culture and get sucked into all of the stuff that's going on around you and all the information. Somebody said to me the other day, Pastor, I don't know what to believe anymore. I said, well, it's real simple. Stop reading all the junk. Let's just go back to the main, the main messaging called the Bible. That's the truth, by the way. There's, you know, there's a lot of lies out there. A lot of people got misinformation. Here's the truth. Go back to the truth. Line it up in your life. You'll be fine. You'll, you're, it'll, it'll settle your soul right down. You're going to get clear-headed real fast. How many here say, you know what, that's me, Pastor. I needed to hear what you shared today. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through your life right now. See, I believe that. I believe as I was speaking God's word, God was speaking into people's lives. So I want to pray for you. Lord, I pray right now, Father, that we would become alert, sober-minded, people who are seeking your face, people who recognize that their life is not their own, that we're only stewarding. We have an accountability to you. I pray today, Father, that you will help us, Lord, to love each other deeply, to lay down our rights and, our, and really stretch ourselves out to help one another, open our soul. Yes, we will be hurt. That's true. It'll happen. But we'll have a forgiving, loving heart. And I just pray, Father, that you will help us to use the gifts that you have put into our lives that we would be able to say at the end of our journey, we will hear your beautiful words that we had been faithful and that we had pleased you. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave.